Thank you, Nisi. Jessica, appreciate that. That, um, that song is really about a life of worship. And that's neat because the third point in our sermon this morning is all about those that want to live their lives, their entire lives, body, mind, and soul for the Lord. So appreciate that and appreciate that act of worship as well. We are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 2, and we have been looking at the three kinds of people that have been involved in the story of the birth of Christ. And we've looked at the Magi, we spent a little time with them. And kind of answered the question, well, what in the world are the Gentile magi or wise men, politically powerful people doing in little Bethlehem, worshiping this person that's basically not even known yet, for the most part, Jesus. And we found that more than likely, at least most of the scholars agree, that when Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was there in the east in Babylon, he shared uh, scripture with him. He shared about the prophecies to come true that the day would come when a messiah would be born in that area and so they were there to seek him daniel was revered actually in the babylonian culture he became head of the magi which basically means a chief wise man and you might think well if all of that's true then would we see any evidence of that today that the people of Babylon embraced this prophet Daniel, this man of God, this man of the word, when they weren't really not disposed towards the God of Holy Scripture. And the answer to that is yes. If you go online or Google Daniel's grave, you will find that, in fact, there are several sites in the east of people who claim that they have the remains of Daniel and his grave. And it turns out that they did respect him. Uh, And almost he became a superstitious figure because when they continued to battle, you know, they're always fighting out there in the east. They continued to battle. Um, One of the reasons they thought they might be losing the other side was because, well, that that team has Daniel's grave. So we need to conquer them, get the grave, bring it over to our side so we can have the good luck and the good fortune and so forth. That really happened through the ages. But right now, there are different sites that claim to have his grave and his remains. Uh, Many of them are in Iran, some in Iraq, and even one in Uzbekistan. And uh, the one in Uzbekistan, folklore says that it grows every year, that his his tomb grows. Um, Of course, it doesn't. It's just they fabricated it. And the reason it was so big is because the, the sultan that... I guess, won it or through a battle. I didn't want people stealing. So he made it so big and heavy that they couldn't take it away. So anyway, it's just good evidence. It's a good reminder of the power of the gospel and scripture and how this one man made an impact. Though he was deported and out of his place, out of the homeland, he was a powerful testimony for God. So we've been looking at all the different characters that surround this very familiar story to us, what we know of as the Christmas story. And then last week we looked at those uh, that are hostile towards God as personified through King Herod. And you'll remember that when King, King Herod heard this news that these kingmakers, these magi from the east are looking for the king of the Jews, it just sent panic throughout his body from head to toe because he's the king of the Jews. And he didn't want anything upsetting that. He was very threatened and very jealous that there may be 
competition. He didn't want this little baby interfering with his life and upsetting his apple cart that he worked so hard to put together and changing things. And so his evil mind immediately began to scheme to eliminate this threat, this baby Jesus. And he did that through ordering young boys to be slaughtered from the age of two down. Just to cover all his bases, to try to eliminate that thing that threatened his kingdom and his empire. And the application to that was that Matthew wants us to know. And I know that the Gospels often start with a beautiful, sweet, serene Christmas story. There's a lot of peace there and there's a lot of comfort and a lot of joy and good tidings that we celebrate every Christmas. But Matthew wants us to know from the very beginning that there are those that do not warmly embrace God and do not warmly embrace Christ. From the very beginning, even at his birth, there were those who wanted to do away with him and would go to great lengths to do that. So there's hostility built in The gospel, there's hostility built within the Christian life. And then Jesus goes on to say when he grows up and he begins to teach to his followers, look, the world is hostile towards me. And I just want you to know that if you follow me, you are going to suffer through some of that same hostility because you're going to stand for what I stand for. And the world doesn't always embrace What Christ stands for. So those are some expectations that we can have as believers to face hostility to our faith. And also something we want to be careful of is to guard our own hearts against hostility. Because there's a sense, I think, if we were honest with ourselves, there's a sense of panic that that strikes a nerve in us when we think, wait a minute, if Jesus is king... That means he calls the shots. Ultimately, the buck stops there. That means I may have to make some changes if I'm going to submit to his authority. And sometimes we make the changes in areas that, well, I can do that and I can do this. And that's not so bad. But when God starts touching on nerves, things that we really treasure, the kingdom that we have built around ourselves, our lives, the value system that we have. The things that we have determined are worth valuable to us and also how we need to be treated or deserve to be treated in the earth. When you start putting a finger on that nerve, well, then there might be some hostility, even from our own hearts. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus is going to lay it out like this. And he's basically going to say, if you're not for me, what? You're against me. So that's the perspective. That's the view from heaven at people's hearts and souls. And how badly we want to kind of create this middle ground of, yeah, well, I'm not really hostile towards you, God, but I do kind of want my own life. Can't we just live on agreeable terms? You have your space and I have mine. And Jesus says, if you're not for me. If you're not here, if you're not with me, if you're not embracing my lordship and my kingdom, guess what? That's not this middle ground. It means that you are against me. So for and against, it's stark terms. So we want to guard our own hearts against any kind of hostility that we may 
harbor that would prevent us from giving God the honor that he deserves. Today we're going to look at the two other kinds of people that are found, and that is those that are indifferent towards God. We find that attitude. And then we will close by looking at at those that are worshipful towards God. So let's read our text again, the first 12 verses in Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Boy, you see God's hand in that text everywhere, even the dreams that the star got them there. And then the dream said, uh, maybe you should circumvent a visit with Herod this time. Herod's motives are not good here. First, we see those that are indifferent towards God. What does that mean? Basically, those that pretty much want nothing to do with Jesus, Uh, he's a non-entity for their lives. And these kind of people we see here personified through the chief priests and the scribes. Those are the people that Herod assembled. He assembled, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them. He wanted from them information that he needed to protect his kingdom. So he was hostile. He panicked. There was rumors going around. There are kingmakers from the east and they're asking about this king of the Jews. So Herod wants to get some information so he can eliminate this threat. And he goes to the most likely source. He's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. Though he has the title king of the Jews. We talked about that. He wants to go to the most likely source. Who is the most likely Group of people that can help me nail this down, find this threat so that I can eliminate him. So he gathers the chief priests, the scribes. These are Jewish leaders. And he says, look, I, I got this. Uh, I don't know that he termed it like this, but in his mind, he's thinking, I got big problems and I need you to help me be a part of my murderous plot. 
I'm sure he didn't say those words. He probably sugarcoated it like he did with the Magi. Uh, I'd kind of like to worship him as well. Could you just fill me in where you find him? So he asked the chief priests and the scribes, your people of the book, you know all about the prophecies. You know what God revealed. Is there anything in your book that might say where this king is going to be born, where he might be located? And in essence, they say, well, yeah, actually, that's an easy one right there in Micah. Uh, He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote the scripture and the prophecy to him. So they give him the information in essence. Yes, God said He's coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And? And? So here are the, talk about leaving me hanging. Here are the people that of all people should be the most excited about the prospect. Even if it wasn't right, the most excited to at least inquire That finally the promised Messiah that they have been pouring themselves over through study and expectation has arrived right where scripture says he will be born. And their response is basically nothing. Not even to be found. They're the ones that have the answer. And yet they they are totally apathetic. There's no, there's no stirring in their hearts or minds whatsoever to even inquire if this might be true. In other words, they, they give the answer that Herod wants and then they just turn around and go back to their lives. They go back to the work. They go back to the projects. They go back to, to their to-do list. Back to watching the Olympics. Back to whatever it is that they were doing in that day. Those that know more about this than anyone go back to their lives. I uh, looked at Timothy Keller's commentary on this and he took the words right out of my mouth. Here's what he had to say. He says, the inactivity on the part of the chief priests is staggering. And that's what when I was reading this, I'm thinking that's you took the words right out of my mouth because How can you know these things and yet not even act on them? If anybody should be worked up, if anybody should be excited or filled with exceeding joy as the Magi were, it should be the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of God's people. Almost, you know, staggering is is neat because you almost want to take a step back. Like, I can't even believe what I'm reading here. <clears throat> didn't give it another thought, no stir, no pilgrimage, no planned trip. Hey, let's just check it out. Let's just uh, secretly fall behind the Magi to see if they find anything. What, what harm could it do? I mean, after all, we're supposed to be anticipating this and they just are not interested. They don't want to worship the true God, apparently. You would have thought that it would have sparked at least some curiosity. But it's just indifference. John chapter 1 verse 11. 
says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That which should have piqued such a high level of interest brushed over. Uh, There's your answer, Herod. Now can I get back to my business as usual? Expositor's commentary, uh, Dr. Gablin says, The great city with its magnificent religious institutions, its wonderful Herodian temple still in process, its aristocratic priesthood and benevolent institutions had no knowledge of the king. Nay, they did not desire the king to come. They were self-satisfied. This foreshadows the whole story of the rejection of the king, the Lord from heaven. There was no room for him in the inn. But there's likewise no room for him among his own. They received him not. So they missed it. I mean, you're thinking about this story, the people that would be the most likely interested. uh, the, The most likely to know what's going on, to be in the know. These are the very people that basically turn their backs to it, turn their backs to what God was doing in the world. And interestingly, the people that you would think would be the very least likely to have an interest in worshiping the newborn king. They're all the way in the east. They have their own affairs. They have their own gods. They worship different things, a different set of codes, values, everything. And yet here they are bowing before him. It's kind of like reminds me of the yearbook. I don't know if they still do it. May not be politically correct anymore, but they used to have uh, most likely to succeed based on the decisions that the seniors were making. And looks like this person, I think you voted on it. Uh, No, I didn't get that title when I graduated from high school. Uh, Most likely to see uh, to succeed based on the life you're living, the decisions you're making, how aggressive you are. And uh, these Jews would be the most likely, should have been the most likely to have been right there on the spot. The least likely, they don't have that category, the least likely to succeed. We kind of all had an idea who that might be in the senior class. But you didn't put it in the yearbook, fortunately. The least likely to be in the know would be the Magi, the kingmakers of the East. And yet here they are. And so... Another thing that Matthew introduces us to the very beginning of the gospel is this idea that of rejection. God's own people are going to reject him. And therefore, he is going to make a people that are not my people, my people. So here we have Gentiles with signs of faith. Well, since we are in this new book of Matthew, just kind of still fresh and starting it, I have spent some time getting acquainted with the characters that we're going to see throughout the book. That way, so when we say uh, or read the name Magi, we'll know what we're talking about. We're going to read about Herod again. He comes up again. And so when I say the word Herod, you're going to know about Herod and his maniacal tendencies. Well, we're going to be reading a lot. About the priests and the chief priests and the scribes in this gospel. So I want to take a little time to get to know them. To get acquainted with these folks. Uh, They were the go-to people. That's why Herod went to them to try to find out where the king might be born. So who are the chief priests? Well, 
You've studied the Old Testament and you know that there were 12 tribes that came into the promised land and God just chose one of those tribes, the tribe of Levi, to serve him as the priests. They would be the religious or the spiritual leaders of the entire nation. So how did you become a priest in that day? It wasn't a democratic process. You didn't get to vote who you wanted to be your priest or who you wanted to offer the sacrifices in the temple. And it wasn't a matter of personal achievement and ministry abilities. You know, who could offer the best sacrifice or who has a way with a knife or who just has a heart for God and the people, a heart of intercessory. It was an appointed position. You had to be in the line of Levi. So God chose them to serve in that way. So when it came to matters, all matters religious, all matters um, uh, political, the Levites were it. And I say political because Israel, the nation of Israel, was a theocracy, meaning ruled by God. And so politics and theology were all mixed. They didn't separate it. It was all part of the thing. So in other words, the priests, they had a lot of power. In essence, they kind of ran the country. They ran the nations. They were the decision makers. They were the movers and the shakers. Now, within this tribe of priests, you had rankings, just like we do in military and just like we do in law enforcement. There are rankings or people that you up the line you answer to. And the very highest is none other than the high priest. And the high priest is the highest priest. He's at the Uh, The position of power and notoriety and he alone is the one who represents the entire nation and all the other priests as well. Once a year, he gets to go into the most holy place and offer that sacrifice, sprinkle that blood of atonement for the people and their sins and to minister to God. And even that important task was only to be performed once a year. Well, the high priest also was the leader of the Sanhedrin, which were 70 rulers. This is just how Israel was put together, how it operated in the days of Christ. So he ruled over. It was like the Senate, what we might think of as the Senate. You got kind of like the president and the Senate. They make the laws. They rule the courts. They enforce the laws. And he presided over the Sanhedrin. Then you had this other guy come in to play under the high priest, a very powerful person called the temple captain. And he might be what we would consider today chief of police. He um, he upheld the laws and there were a lot of laws that the Sanhedrin would put forth. The way that he got that job was to be appointed for it. So the high priest would appoint his chief of police if you will, he wants to appoint somebody he knows is going to be loyal, somebody he knows is not going to constantly harass him and question every command that he gives. Look, just do what I tell you to do and force this. And he had the power to do that. It's kind of do it or you might lose your job kind of thing. It's only now that we get to the chief priest because you don't even find chief priest is not a, an official position in Scripture. You won't find it in the Old Testament. So then who are these chief priests? If you have high priests and temple captain, well, the chief priests basically are a conglomeration of all those leaders. The high priest, the temple captain, anybody in a position of authority, the temple treasurer who is in charge of all the money. That's a powerful position in that day. The Sanhedrin, the ruling elders. So they were kind of grouped 
as the chief priests. They're the leaders. They, they basically run the country. So when we read about the chief priests in the, in the gospel, that's what we're talking about. They are the movers and shakers. They have all the power, all the authority. They have even people to enforce that for them. Sadly, in light of our text, so it is basically the people that run the country that are indifferent to God. So you kind of, so what good can come out of that? And that's why all along they're, they're in opposition to God. And those that are indifferent now when Jesus is a baby, when he gets a little older and starts confronting their kingdom, just like he threatened Herod's, then they become hostile towards him. They finish what Herod failed to do. And they put Christ to death. Then you have, of course, in the priesthood, just ordinary priests. They serve in a, a variety of ways. Not all the priests offered sacrifices in the temple or burned incense. Some of them just, you know, they worked over there at the dung gate with the dung. Or over here in the fish gate with the fish. Uh, or some of them were on the choir. They sang on the choir and helped with worship. So there was just a, a lot of different jobs that priests could do. Some of them were the lower ranks, we might say. When we read the Gospels and it starts talking about people coming to faith, including the priests, that's who we're talking about. It's mostly the low-ranking priests, those that just had your everyday job. It's not the chief priest. If it's a person of prominence, the Gospels almost always point that out. Like, hey, can you believe it? This person. In the days of Christ, this, these political powers, it was all corrupt. You see that in the trial of Christ. It's just people throwing their weight around, their power around. It's really not legal and just. Just so we know what we're looking at and what's coming. So Herod gathered these chief priests. They run the country. But he also gathered the scribes. So who were the scribes? The scribes were the scholars of the day. They were the poindexters of the day. You know, they just poured themselves over the Torah, over Scripture. They, they, they wanted to know every word, every verse. Every, they wanted to be experts in it so they could, be, they could win at Bible trivia every time they played. I mean, these guys really, really poured themselves in. And did you have to be a Levite to be a scribe? No, you could come from any tribe. It's just people from any tribe that want to know God's Word. They want to be a master in it. Want to study it. It is said, of course, Ezra was a scribe. It's said that many of the scribes memorized several books of the Bible. They just were very, very disciplined and wanted to know it that well. Just like today, we have what we might call our, uh, our liberals and our conservatives. And that day, they had their liberals and what I'll call fundamentalists. Because it's a little different to be a fundamentalist than it is to be conservative. Fundamentalists take things very, very literally. So among these theologians, these Bible scholars, you had the liberal camp. They kind of picked and they, they were just choosing what they wanted to believe in. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Those were the Sadducees. The fundamentalists were the Pharisees. They, they're going to make sure every little jot and, and uh, the commas and the periods and so forth, we're going to follow this thing exactly like God says. Now, the interesting thing is that the fundamentalists and the liberals both opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. 
It wasn't like, well, I don't want to be a liberal. I'm going to be a fundamental. They both challenged him at every step. So there are your theological camps. And he inquired of these people that would know their Bibles. And to answer this question would have been very easy for them. Where is the king going to be born? Oh, they'd have known that. Just They wouldn't even have had to search for it. They would have known that. So all that legalism, all that biblical head knowledge never touched them. Experts of the law, leaders of the people in the ways of God never touched them to the point that they had this true awareness of God or a true awareness of his existence or his presence among them. And yet they they lived for him. Uh, they, they fought each other over what God said. What was true? I mean, it's incredible when you think about this. They remained indifferent. They remained clueless. They were so engrossed in their Bible games, so engrossed in the way they were going to worship, so engrossed in how we're going to enforce all these rules and all these laws and what it really means, so engrossed in these things and their political games that they were lost. And far from God. He's nothing to them. So to put it just one more way. If you look at it from this perspective, they had all things God. But they did not have God. Can you have all things God? Can you be about all things God and yet not have God? Not really know God? Absolutely. Just because we have a Bible and even read it. Just because we go to church faithfully. Because we care about the people in church. Because we care about people's needs being met. Just because we care whether the grass is being cut or not. And we really care what's going to be served at the luncheon this Sunday. Just because we, we care about who the elders and the pastor and the deacons are of a church. Doesn't mean that we truly care about God or even know him. You see, we can care deeply and be passionate about all things God and not even know God. That's what we find right here. That's scary. That's sobering. That they could even fight tooth and nail and even want to put people to death because they oppose their views and not even know the God that they say they're fighting for and standing for and even suffering for. And associated with. And so we can have our theology camps. We can want to be careful about who we associate with as the people of God. And we can care deeply about who's singing and what kind of songs are sung at the service and not know God. Don't care about the true God. What it, what it really is, it's a life and it's just self-seeking. It's just another way to really love yourself without loving God. They found a way to do it. They found a way to serve themselves and get God out of the picture. Yet God is everywhere on the walls. There's no God pulse in them. 
You know, we know that Scripture says we're dead to sin. There's no God pulse. That's how we're born. They don't have that God pulse. They're lost. And without the grace of God to open their eyes to the things that they have entangled around themselves, the blindness to all the countless times they've denied Him and denied opportunities to worship Him. They are blind and lost. There's just nothing there. No God pulse. That's why they need to be born again. So that then they can be moved, they can be stirred to worship and to serve. So we want to ask ourselves questions about, is it possible? And what's in my heart, what's in my soul? Is it stirred towards God or just the things of God? There's a difference. There shouldn't be a difference. But our heart is so sinful that we can even split those two things up. Do, Do I long to get closer to Does my heart panteth for him like the deer pants for the water? How desperate am I? Well, what does my heart want? What am I longing for? What do I treasure? Do I find myself denying things of the world in favor of worshiping God? Where am I in this? What kind of decisions am I making right now? And where are they leading me in life? Are we engaged in the worship of God? Hmm. We're either for him or against him. What kind of person are we? Maybe those that are hostile toward God. Uh, maybe those that are different, indifferent toward God. If so, what do we do about it? Well, lastly, the third kind of person in this and won't spend as much time on this. We've already touched on it. Those who are worshipful toward God. And this is as personified in the Magi who came and worshipped him. If you remember, I preached on Psalm 95 last communion Sunday. We came up with this working definition of, well, what is it worship? The Magi came. We want to worship the king of the Jews. What did they mean when they said that? Well, here's a good working definition. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your whole being as you do it. Your mind, your will, your emotions, it's all involved in your life. Live for God, like the song that they sang for the offering. It's just your whole being. You're throwing everything behind it. John Piper describes worship like this. Worshiping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. And that's what we see in this passage. So here are the Magi. Here are those that have, are disposed to worship. They recognize the authority of Jesus by calling him king. You're my king. You, you are a king. And I bow before you. You're over me. So they recognize that authority and they ascribe it. Secondly, uh, they ascribe to him great worth. How do they do that? By bowing before him. You know, when we're in that position, we're saying you are higher than I am. You are more valuable. I am lesser. And I gladly and voluntarily come under your authority and ascribe to you that great honor and worth. Third, we see their emotions engaged in verse 10, where they were exceedingly joyful when the star appeared and they went to worship this king. They were they were joyful four times. It's it's. It's awkward the way, um, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
mean, it's like joy times four here. That's how excited they were. That's how engaged they were. Their emotions were there. The indifferent have no joy. There was no excitement. There was just nothing there. And yet here in the Magi, they're filled with anticipation. Because they care. The indifferent don't care what's there. What's there to see? I'm going to get back to my life. So they have no problem coming to him and bowing before him. It's, it's a privilege to come under one that is so great. I've got to get on my face and, and lay on the ground before you to show you honor. What's that to me? You're, you're magnificent. You're wonderful. You're valuable. I will gladly bow before you. And then lastly... The sacrificial gifts. You ever thought about giving gifts to God as a part of worship? Not just the tithes and offerings. That's worship. But what are our treasures? What what can we give to God? They come bearing gifts. And that is a part of what true worship means. So why did they come and give these gifts to God? Is it because God's needy? He's going to. He's going to need them. Well, Acts 17, 25 says that God didn't serve by human hands as if he needs something. We don't take up an offering because God's poor and he needs money to live. It's not a care package here. You poor thing. You, I, I put God, all the people in church together, God, and we have this care package for you. So we, uh, you, you need a shave and a haircut and we apparently you can't afford it. So to make you look better, whatever, that's not what it is. And it's not a bribe. I'm giving you this because I need things. And I want you to just remember how much I have sacrificially given you this to the church or donated it. Because I need some favors from you. It's not that either. We cannot donate ourselves into God's favor or blessings. So what is it? I'm going to quote from John Piper. It's a pretty incredible statement. What he has to say about sacrificial giving. The gifts are intensifiers of desire for Christ himself in much the same way that fasting is. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I've not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. I think that's what it means to worship God with gifts of gold and frankincense. And myrrh. May God take the truth of this text and waken in us a desire for Christ himself. May we say from the heart, Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah, the King of Israel. All nations will come and bow down before you. God wields the world to see that you are worshipped. Therefore, whatever opposition I may find, I joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to you and bring my gifts to say that you alone can satisfy my heart, not These things. What a wonderful way of words he has there. This whole idea of what it means. And I love what it says there, that that line, then opening their treasures. Every time we come corporately 
to bow before the king and to worship him, ascribe value to him. How about what are our treasures? Are we opening our treasures and bearing them before the Lord? The things that we hold dear. Are we willing to just give them to him to do what he wants? Because what we want is more God. It's not that they're wrong necessarily. We would sure enjoy them. But we want more. We want that intensified worship experience. So we'll close with this. They bore their gifts. The gold, just in short, I had more, but we're running out of time here. The gold is basically the gift of kings. They're recognizing his authority. They're recognizing his kingship. The frankincense is a pure uh, aroma, came from trees, and it was very, very costly. And it was used in the temple as a symbolism of a sweet aroma to the Lord. Uh, it even says in, in um, Deuteronomy that the frankincense, stop making it about you. This is my paraphrase. It's actually about me. I really enjoy this, as God is saying. And you can't have this certain kind of mixture and you can't apply it anywhere else. Only for me in the temple. Frankincense recognizes deity. It, it's, it, it has to do with meeting with God. Because he's God. And the myrrh is a perfume. And it was used for practical purposes in the day of Christ. And even in Proverbs, that's what they made their bed smell good with or their clothes smell good. And, and it also helped douse bad odors. And so they put um, embalmed, well, they, they prepared Jesus' body with the myrrh so that you would not smell the stench of a decaying body. It was powerful like that. It was also fairly costly, but it had practical Purposes And that represents the mortality. Sometimes life stinks. Sometimes there, there are hard things about it and it needs this aroma. And so it's kind of a message of smoothing things out, but it also represents the mortality. So they are worshiping like this. You're a king. You're God. And you are mortal. And we know that. Though he is the king and he is God, that he does die. He is the son of man and he is mortal. So we, what does God, when he gazes from his royal throne, see in our hearts? What's in there? What kind of people, what kind of person are we? In light of those kinds of people that surround the Christmas story. Well, at New Covenant Fellowship, we want to know God. And we want to make him known. Know him so well that we can also make him known. We want to be a place where people can come and worship this true God. Where he can be exalted and hailed as the one and only king. Where people can be transformed from hostile to holy. From indifferent to different. We want our meetings to communicate to all present that we worship God with our whole being, mind, soul, spirit. That's our goal. He's king. He is man. And he is God. May God bless the preaching of his word.